K Tempest and this is the LSQ podcast. Jenny Elliskew, thanks for checking out episode 83 of the LSQ podcast. I'm so grateful to the hip-hop and spoken word artist Kay Tempest for the conversation you'll hear in this episode. It was one of the most inspiring interviews I've had the pleasure to host on this show because Kay was really willing to kind of get into the philosophical deep end of their creative process. And also, I just love their new album so much. It was great to get to find out more about how The Line is a Curve, their latest LP, came together. And Kay Tempest is on tour in Europe for the rest of November into December. You can get info and tickets via ktempest.co.uk. And we connected over the summer when Kay was about to go perform at the Glastonbury Festival. So Glasto was our starting topic. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Tell me about your first time at Glastonbury. What do you remember? And when would that have been? Was it as a punter, as they say? <laughs> yeah, uh, it would have been before I had gigs on, you know, real stages. I was doing a lot of like, I might have got in on like a poetry ticket or like maybe like as a kind of session player in amongst a house band for one of the smaller tents or stages. And then you can just try and walk around the site and just say, hey, I'm an artist. Can I play? And then they'll write your name on a little blackboard out the front and, you know, say 2 p.m. So I've never been to Glastonbury and I've been chastised over the years by fellow festival going friends who are like, you know, we'll go to the extreme of saying you can't really say you've been to a festival if you haven't been to Glastonbury, you know, which I appreciate the legend of it all. I appreciate that. But it's it is a whole world, right, where there is just so many more. I think a lot of people who go to somewhat typically structured festivals, you know, you're the main stage and your second stage and a couple of tents and whatever. But Glastonbury, it's truly like, you know, just myriad venues, things that are venues to play in there. It's special for me because I've got a lot of friends that build some of the areas, a lot of people that work as the crew that, you know, and that live in all different parts of the UK. And so I kind of see them there, you know, that's where... I get to hang out with them. And also because so many bands are playing, you get to see your friends that, you know, friends that you might not have seen for a while because you all hang out and make music together until the point where one of you can, you know, get a record deal and then you don't see them so much. So it's just, it's a beautiful thing for that. And I don't know, I don't really subscribe to the idea that um, anybody needs to go anywhere. Like I'm sure people (laughs) find their way to the, the perfect experiences for them. But yeah, it's beautiful because it's so varied. Yeah, there's like big, big main stages, huge artists play on them, but also there's like kind of more peaceful areas and more like late night areas and that kind of anarchic spirit to it, even though it's a huge corporate thing, which I feel it. You know, some people have cynical opinions about it, but personally, I I get a lot of energy from it. Nice. And what's the stage where you're going to be performing this year? I'm doing two shows. I'm doing one show, which is in an area called Shangri-La, which is like the kind of late night, like quite rowdy area. I'm playing a fairly early slot at like seven o'clock. 
with Dan Carey, who I work with, and he's just gonna he's made a load of music that I haven't heard, and we're just gonna see what happens. And that's gonna be beautiful because I love doing shit like that with him, and that's how we used to do our sets when we were we would turn up and just see what happened, and then the proper show is the next day, Friday afternoon on. It's like the second biggest stage on the site. So potentially it could be a huge gig. But also the, what's beautiful about it is that people are there for the weekend. They're not there for you. So there's no pressure. It's like you literally you can't like, I, I might get my head in a mess thinking, oh my God, it's a fucking massive stage. But the reality is it's about the weekend and the experience and you're just contributing to somebody's afternoon. It's like you can't really go wrong because the magnitude of the thing is what people are there to experience. Like you're, you don't really feature, you know, you're just there. I'm so intrigued by the first of the two performances, like a freestyle. And I'd love to know more about when you first started doing that kind of thing, you know, with Dan and before Dan, like the idea of doing poetry and music live, especially improvised. Yeah, when I was younger, about 15 or 16, and I started to write lyrics and perform them, Freestyling was like a big part of like how I hung out with my friends. So there was one thing which was like writing your lyrics and trying to get to the end of the lyric that you'd written so that you could share it. But also there was something about the spontaneity of being able to just contribute to a session without having anything prepared that became like addictive. And then also at the time there was a lot of battling. When I got to be about 18, 19, there was like a kind of big kind of battle scene in London. And that was an exciting place because it was like... At the time, I was full of ego and very competitive and desperate to be heard. And that was an arena where all of those kind of, I suppose, adolescent, like natural adolescent feelings are like really catered to. And you can really prove yourself in a way by, I don't know, pitting yourself against other MCs. And the whole point was that it was spontaneous, that you're making it up, that like this is on the spot. So at that time, I was working those muscles. I believe that with lyricism, very similar to like jazz improvisation or musical improvisation, there's a, there's muscle, there's a set of connections in the brain that when stimulated and worked can improve and you start to be able to access a bigger and bigger pool of resources and you, you begin to be able to relax more into the, the act of improvisation. And it's in these moments when you are relaxed and the muscles are, are pumped that you can, like, you know, a freestyle has an actual quality rather than it being good for the fact that you just made it up, you know, because there's that, there's that to it that people will be like, Oh, they get excited about it because you just made it up. <laughs> and um, that can interfere with the, your own quality control. But it's been a long time since I've done that. And since I discovered poetry and spoken word, and um, I started to write for the theater and began to understand myself as a writer, as a poet, I stopped improvising in the same way. Like, I will still like freestyle with musicians, but I won't make up the words in the moment. I'll just draw for lyrics that already exist or snippets of things will come or like I will kind of revisit poems and clash them together. But that thing, that particular art of the the freestyling, it's something I associate with my past. And I just, I don't know if I'd be able to do it again the way that I used to, because I used to do it every day. And I think like with anything that you do every day, you, it becomes you know, second nature, but then when you put it down for long enough and you develop other aspects of your creativity and you can't just, like now, if I decided to freestyle now, it would just be like pointless because I could do better if I use my words that I've already written, you know? Well, it's just freestyling itself is something different now than it was before, but it's still 
you know, for you, I mean, specifically because you're building on these experiences and these skills that you've amassed. So it doesn't mean the same thing as when you're doing like battle disc kind of situation when you're 18. It's just like when you talked about the people being like, oh shit, having that sort of like, you just made that up. You know, I'm picturing like, especially if you fucking savaged someone just then and you just came up with that, that's extra points of oh shit. Cause it's just like, yeah, you really crushed that person. (laughs) And you thought of that just now. Whereas I imagine maturity makes you not, that's not as appealing of a skill to demonstrate that you could annihilate someone. And maybe I'm mistaken. What what was your sort of teenage battle rap experiences where you're like taking down, where you're like going off on the other person kind of? I mean, a lot of it, I don't remember. It was like a furious time. I was very dedicated to getting on the mic whenever I possibly could. But for many reasons, my memory is, is not great. So sometimes people will say to me, like, fuck, I saw you at this battle. Like, I don't know how old you were. And you just went through every single MC on the fucking bill. And then you, like, some some people might say it. Like, they'll be like, oh, yeah, you were brutal. But I don't really recall it. And also, I remember getting beaten a lot as well. So it's not like I was, like, fucking, you know, razor sharp with it. I had my moments where I would use people's perceptions of me and, you know, just basically speak the worst things they could say, but then manipulate it so that it kind of outwitted their attack or something. I mean, all the whole scene, it's not, it was definitely not my best moments lyrically. What made you want to do it in the first place? Like before you were obsessed with it, when was the first time you even attempted to just like, yeah, spit lyrics? Rhyming. Well, I was a musician. I was obsessed with music and I thought I was going to, make beats and that was my contribution to the session it was like I thought I was a beat maker but there was something about it that wasn't quite it was like coming from a desire to be involved rather from the gut saying you must create you know you must create this music it was like a desire to be able to create music I was obsessed with music and I loved it and I wanted to make beats but the beats weren't as good as like the beats that my bro like my best friend who was, you know, like has been playing drums since he was two years old or something. He's like, he is music. And like one day I was just sitting with him. I think we we're about 13 or something, 14. We were just, he was like making a beat on his thing. And he was just like, you need to find your thing. <laughs> like, I don't even know if you remember saying it, but I used to take his word for gospel. You know, he, he was important in my life. And it just started me thinking, well, what my thing is, I have these notebooks that I write in every night. I read like incessantly to the point where like, you know, my, my head hurts and I can't stop reading it. It's like, well, words is my thing really. And then it's, then I, I started to think, well, maybe all of my friends that would sit there and rap and tell their rhymes, it never had dawned on me that the things I was doing in my notebooks could be shared. Like I never had thought of it. And then one day it was like, I couldn't think about anything else. I was like, no, this is actually what I'm built for. Like suddenly I wanted to share. And just from that moment, the desire built and everything got very loud inside me. And it was like, I just one day, I just said, look, I've got this rhyme. And I shared it to my friend down the phone, like the house phone. <laughs> my friend was on the house phone in his mum's house. Like, <laughs> and then um, he was like, that's dope. Like, we should go down to this open mic. He took me to this record store. That, that was like a Wednesday night. I phoned him up. And then on the Friday, we went down to this record store. And it was like every Friday night, this particular record store in town, it would get packed out, packed, 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 full of 
rappers and fans of the art form and just and it was it was a spot you know it was like where to go big big names artists from the US would come there when they were touring they would like stop by there it was run by these really cool people and it was just like a hotbed for lyricism in the UK at the time it was called Deal Real it was in Carnaby Street and um like most Def came through on his tour Ghostface Killer was that you know it's like it was like the spot and like big artists from the London scene and the UK scene would be there and I remember just like pushing through the crowd it was so crowded like the people's bodies were so tight and I was just like no, I have to get through and they were looking at me like why are you trying to get to the front and I was just like ignoring them I, I remember the tunnel vision I remember like reaching for the mic I remember like the, the heat the fever your whole body beginning to like go into almost like unbearable like minute precision detail slow motion and then the words and it's just it's the same feeling like that was 20 years ago more and it's the same feeling that I have each time I'm about to approach the mic. It's like this like deep connection to the world and like wanting it to be out there. And I remember just the place transformed, people transformed, I transformed. The whole experience was like transformative. <laughs> like uh, I spelt my rhyme. And, and just suddenly getting all this like acknowledgement at that time, you know, I was not somebody that, was like my presence wasn't really welcome in certain places like as a person I wasn't I was an oddity and I was trans I didn't know it at the time but my body was presenting in strange ways people didn't know who or what I was and like I freaked people out like and um kind of weird like glasses like used to wear a lot of like hoodies a lot of coats like small like just weird I mean like weird kids like and then suddenly like these people would be giving me respect so obviously as a 15 year old that's an addictive feeling. You think, wow, these people give a shit about what I have to say. And then from that night until today, I haven't thought about anything else but rhymes. And it's just been a process of understanding and developing integrity and creativity and the possibility of words. And, you know, suddenly I find myself to be a writer, like really, really a writer. Like it's incredible. It's something I dreamed of. I didn't even dare to know that I was dreaming it. I just used to read incessantly and I was learning from everything I listened to or read. I felt a part of it. But now I really understand that like when you receive that much inspiration from something and you're able to suddenly give something back, you're able to publish a book or make a record and you can contribute, you can stand on that line that goes all the way back and your contribution can be felt going forwards. It's the most incredible like a kind of epiphany moment of of achieving balance or, or things being right, like that, that I have received so much and that I'm able to offer. It's my kind of life force, really. And to what extent would you say that discovering this and, you know, in these early moments of like stepping onto the stage and feeling this connection, like that just that helped you make sense of yourself and like just who you were? Because as you say, you felt like an unwelcome presence in some of these places. You felt misunderstood, but I'm assuming, and as so many of us, when you're that age, you don't understand yourself really at all at that point. It's a chaotic confusion. And seeing what you had the power to do in this pure way, like, was that an early moment of epiphany about like carving your own path? Because what you ended up doing is on the poetry spectrum, of course, there's this tremendous history, but the modern incarnation of what you're doing, it is very unique. You know, it is as a recording artist who combines poetry and music and is successful at it and recognized, you know, like there aren't a lot of other artists that 
do something that unique with their love of words and music? Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I don't think that at that time I was having a moment where I had any kind of understanding of like myself. There was no ease in my personal dysphoria like at all. But what there was was that I, I suddenly had a purpose and I had creativity instead of destruction. And I think there's a moment in a young person's life, depending on their situation or whatever's around them, when you don't even know that you're making a choice, but you have to make a choice between those two things. Like, will I create or will I destroy? Will I be creative or will I be destroyed by life? Like, you know? So I was really lucky because I had a passion. And the passion that I had was stimulated by so many different kinds of things. And like my obsession, my fixation was complete. In fact, me, who I was, my body, what I was going through, but I actually didn't want to even think about it. I wanted it to go away. I wished it was different and I wanted it to be so far away from my experience. I wish I didn't have to have a body. It was like this thing that my mind dragged around and I just hated it. But when I was like accessing the space of creativity, I did have escape. And then I just got to build in this like other world that doesn't exist, like this world of creativity, like where you go when you make music where music comes from, where music takes you to. It's a different world, actually. And I think that a lot of young people that are kind of obsessed with, like, world-making in other forms, whether that's, like, reading or, like, stories or, I don't know, like, computer games or, like, music. For me, it was music and it was breathing. Like, you're granted access to a deeper, more resonant environment. That's what I felt. This world wasn't real enough for me. It wasn't real. I found it all surface. I hated everything about how people engage with each other. I found it really grated on me. Now I feel different. Now I love this world. <laughs> I love the way people communicate. I understand more than I did then. And I have like so much more joy. But then in terms of what you're saying about the different strands of what I do, yes, yeah, sometimes it lands with me like really how amazing it is that I get to work in these different forms. But it all feels very genuine. It's not like I set out to do this, that, or the other. It was like I followed an impulse. It's not like there was any plan. And that's why it's quite weird. Sometimes I meet people and they're like, oh, you know, I listened to your work and it's helped me realize what I could do. And I want to, I want to be a spoken word artist. I think, what's a spoken word artist? I don't know what that is. Like, I never knew that was a thing. Like, I never wanted that. It's been really natural, the development. I just followed the words. And then actually what happened was the, all the doors were closed. So like. I couldn't get in the music industry and I couldn't get my books published. Nobody wanted to publish me. Nobody wanted to put my records out. Like I couldn't get my plays put on in theaters. You know, it just, it wasn't happening. So I just had to do, I just had to do what was happening. And what I could do is I could get a slot on an open mic and sell poems. And that became, oh, I could get gigs. Oh, I can get 50 pounds for a 20 minute set. And then it's like, well, I'll do this because this is paying my rent. And then, like, eventually I made enough noise in that world because it's a smaller world. The music world is huge, but the spoken word scene is relatively small. So you can very quickly make your presence felt. Especially at that time, I was, like, full of it, <laughs> full of myself. <laughs> I just wanted to fucking, you know, shout. And then, like, at some point, I got offered this opportunity to write a play because a theatre director had seen my spoken word stuff. And I was doing like three, four shows a night, a couple of shows a weekend with my band, you know, trying to, I was like on it. There was nothing else. There was nothing else. So it was a lot of um, just relentless pursuit of, of, I don't know what I was pursuing. I just couldn't stop. And then eventually it turned out all right. 
it sounds like sort of after this initial phase where it was an incarnation of music for you and you realized that you had this facility with words and that you loved words, but at a certain point you stopped and paused and thought, wait, poetry is a thing and delved into it. And as you're saying, you started to write enough poetry that you tried to get published. So tell me a bit about that journey and what kicked it off. It came about because of the spoken word, these slam events, like the most beautiful part of the night out for me, like a rap show or music night out, was like eventually at some point, a bunch of rhymers, a bunch of rappers would get in a circle and just share the rhymes a cappella. And that for me was my favorite moment of the session because it was like, I get to really listen to what people are saying. And in its best moments, I found spoken word gigs to be like that. That it's like, oh, you can just stand up and speak your lyrics. And people just listen to the lyric and they they hear the musicality of the lyric. And you don't have to compete with faulty speakers and like, you know, whatever. You don't need a DJ to do it. You just turn up. So after doing that, I started to see more poets. I didn't know there was such a thing. as I didn't know. I didn't know. I was really ignorant. I read like the poets that maybe somebody might give me a poetry book and say, hey, read this shit. Like, or like. Here's some roomy, read this shit. Yeah, I wasn't like into poetry. I wasn't like, oh, you know, I'm up on poetry. I didn't know anything. I was ignorant. I was listening to music all the time. Anyway, I just started seeing more and more poets. And I was like, okay. Like, I started to understand what my words were doing to audiences. And then I started to think about how the words were being received when there wasn't music. I realized that there was an appetite for my words to be heard because people were keen to listen. And as I started to understand that, I began to write more. It's hard to unpick a process of investigation, creative curiosity. It's kind of mysterious. It just happens that I started to be, okay, this is something. And then it begins to filter into everything you're thinking about. Everything you pick up, you read, I started to find my way. Like, you know, there was a big, big library in New Cross. I used to go there all the time and I just started to pick up different things. It was like pre-internet, which my I am phase six. It's a strange thing to discuss. But I just started to think about myself differently. And then it was like, could I dare to think of myself as a poet? It was such a big word. It felt so big and scary. And, and now I really understand it as I was lucky enough to have a show. I got booked for a literary festival in Brazil. And I got to spend a few weeks in Brazil, like six, seven years ago now. And I met this beautiful person and she told me, in Brazil, poet, it's like a term of endearment. It's what you say to your, like, you know, my poet, my love, you know. And that's how it feels to me now. Like, it used to be a scary word because I didn't fully understand what it meant. And now I understand what it means. And a poet is a person with a very tender spirit who is, like, sensitive, inquisitive, like, curious, and who feels so acutely their environment that they're compelled to create in order to connect, access the feeling, deal with, cope with the sensitivity. So a poet, it's not scary anymore. And I don't flinch when I describe myself that way. I feel better and better about it. It's clear that you take the things that you do and that you love with great seriousness. And so I'm imagining that once you did start to step into a confidence about being a poet, that you also perhaps felt like you needed to do some kind of training or improve your skills or like focus more on words, even as someone who, as you've said, as a kid, you were obsessed with words and writing. But like, how did you begin to 
figure out how to get better at what you were doing, knowing you were already good at it, but wanting to clearly wanting to always improve? There's a beginning point for any artist or any person really, which is, you know, this connection. The connection is how I wrote about it in a book I wrote over lockdown, actually. So you have this instinctive, kind of mysterious, passionate connection with the infinite creativity. But then it's like anything else. Craft. You need to fucking work. You need to put the hours in. It's like anything else. The craft is the thing that you do while you're waiting around for the connection to show up. The craft is the thing you do day after day. You get your chops up, like, you know, you have to work. And I had nothing else in my life. There was nothing else. That is all I wanted to do. And so I did work all the time. It's hard to explain. There was no plan. It was just like, I just had to keep working at it. I just knew I had to keep working at it. Like, I had this desire to be published. And then I had to think, well, what is this desire about? I don't know. I just wanted people to be able to have the words on the page. Couldn't get published. So did it myself, set up a publishing company with my friend and he designed the books, we made these books. And then this editor from a big publishing house, Picador, he sent us like an email because we sold out. We got, we managed to get this big theatre in London. They had a what's called a down day or a dark day and they were like asking artists to come in and just fill the theatre if they wanted to for free. So we did this like launch of this self-published book at the Old Vic Theatre, which is 1,000 seat theatre in the centre of town. It was a big move. Like we just had a load of spoken word poets who get we were getting kind of looked down at by the establishment. There was all this weird snobbery. I don't think it exists so much anymore, or at least I don't give a shit about it. So it doesn't come into my realm. But at the time, there was this weird divide, and it felt kind of revelatory and celebratory. And it just so happened that this editor was at that gig, and so he said, "Hey, like I'd love to publish you at Picador." So I mean, all this to say that. I was supported, actually. I had editorial help. I had Don Patterson's eye. And that was really crucial, learning how it is to work with an editor. Incredible experience. You begin to think about words differently. Also, I wrote a play, and then I had this real collaboration with actors, directors. Like, you know, I think collaboration is hugely important for discovery and improving yourself and learning where you're going wrong. Yeah, being open to criticism or not thinking you're, yeah, not being too sensitive about it. I love getting feedback, especially from an editor. It's like somebody thinking that much about my words was like, you know, at times it can be frustrating, the editorial relationship, but it's always, it's just like, you know, it's like fresh air in your words. It's amazing. But yeah, I don't know if I really answered your question. I just, I just kept going and I could feel myself able to do things that I wasn't able to do before in certain areas. I don't know, there was a feeling in me that, Particularly with like songwriting, I became better at songwriting after I had written a play. And I was able to write a novel after I had written this 75-minute long poem that sustained narrative. Suddenly I was able to think about connections of characters and like you have to build you have to build a universe. And I think I could literally feel pathways in my brain opening up that weren't there before. That was like, okay, narrative, plot, character, time frame. Like I could it wasn't there before. Before it was like 16 bar rap, you know, like repeat the chorus. (laughs) I mean, that still really informs the way you approach your albums for sure. You know, looking at perspectives of different characters and the songs are told from different characters' perspectives. Do you feel like it's just that it's like the matrix that you impose on the world, everything you look at, it sort of breaks down into those, you're like, okay, what is the story here? Or, Or, you know, when you go out into the world, do you feel like, 
you're sort of a portal for observing things from that perspective? I don't know. It's I'm interested in people. And for sure, when I'm out in the world, I enjoy being around people. I live in the city, you know, I'm from a city. People are like crucial <laughs> to me, like, you know, but so exciting and strange. And the way that we do things is fascinating and bizarre and painful. And then, I don't know, you try and get to the heart of it, especially if you're like an outsider or for, for some reason or another, you are kind of marginalized somehow. I think that can create in people, not all people, but some, like a real desire to understand what they are ostracized from because it, it creates this like look of longing that is actually also able to be in some ways a clearer view because you're not in it. And I want to be in it. You know, I want to be close to people in life, but for a long time, I was not welcome. So what that created in me was desire to understand. So I think that sometimes that, you know, the writer, the novelist, this like the observer, it comes from, I hope, like a deep fascination with people or like a willingness to understand the impossible things that we go through in our lives and relationships. But then in terms of like the albums, I don't know. The way it all works is that it's just you, you live your entire life and you have this absolute like sediment upon sediment of experience. All of the things that you've learned and seen and felt and touched like are in you. You feel them, they form who you are. And then at some point you go to create and something comes out of you that you didn't even realize you've been carrying for 20 years or 30 years or 10 minutes. It just finds its way out of you. And then you realize, oh, well, that moment when I smelt that smell or observed that thing or when that person did that to that person obviously went in in a way that was profound enough for it to have come out now but it's like I don't feel like it I'm doing it it's when it's at its best I'm actually not doing it at all I'm just like you know I'm facilitating because I'm the hands but it's coming through like not it's coming through you not because of you in its best moments and then that goes back to like what I was saying about craft is when it isn't like that, when it isn't coming for you, when it's nowhere to be fucking found and you're sitting in a room thinking that, you know, how dare you ever have thought that you had something of worth to say. It's on those days, if you can still manage to get up and do a thousand words on the contents of a character's school bag, <laughs> that's what makes you a writer, you know, I think. Do you have a daily practice like that of certain number of words a day? It depends what I'm trying to write. At the moment, I have a novel that's due in. It's so much of it is dictated by deadlines, as well as this being my vocation. It's also my occupation. Like, you know, this is how I pay my rent. So there are certain like real practical demands of it that it kind of interferes with the romantic notion of a writer's life. But a lot of it is like, okay, deadline. I need, you know, whatever it was, 12,000 words of foot on connection by next month. I better get writing. And then... Other times when I'm on tour, it's like I don't try and write on tour unless I want to because I'm in a different headspace. The thing that I have, which is strange, is that I have multiple creative personalities and they're really, really different. So the performer is a different person to the writer and I'm starting to realise that more and more. And actually what the performer needs is like certain kind of regimes for the body and mind to stay well on the road. The stress and the reality of life for a performer going up in front of thousands of people or two people, whoever's turned up, like what that does to a person is particular. And in that particularity, there are so many things that happen to the performer 
in the energetic exchange with the audience like it's a different art it's a different craft it's a different practice it takes a different toll and it gives different rewards it's really social it's really public you're with your crew your bands you're moving around it's incredible it's the most electric fun deep process but it's very different to what the writer needs so for example I just came off a two-month tour and then I went away for 10 days to start writing for this novel that's due in I could feel the gears changing I could feel the gear I was like oh I'm changing I'm changing it's a different person coming out because the writer is quiet they just want to walk around the town and like go for a coffee like or you might spend all day just like turning something over in your mind to get 300 words or like an hour and a half at two in the morning when suddenly it's like, ah, oh, but you can't push it. Like in the same way that when you're performing, it's like, okay, 9 p.m. showtime, let's go. You've got to be ready, it's there. But when you're trying to write a novel, it might take me three weeks to work out something I didn't even realize I was trying to work out. It's like, <laughs> it's crazy, it's different. In the moment when the thing comes to you, usually, as I'm so curious and as someone who's somewhat word obsessed myself, like, you know, when you feel like the words that are the perfect words that you've been searching for, like, do they float in? Is the thing floating in that concrete or is it so much more abstract than that? That's an interesting question. It depends on the form. So for a poem, I'm working on a collection of poems at the moment. For a poem, yeah, the words might come to you exactly, suddenly, exactly as they should. In some poems, they do. More often, you get a draft of the poem down and then you look at each word and you say, like, where are you directing us? Like, is this the best word? Like, is this received language? Is this a clunky image? Do we need that? Is that over? So then it's like, actually, the craft of the poems, because a poem is smaller, stiller. And it's like, for me, a poem is a map. It's a map towards an experience, but it's not the experience itself. It's a map towards a journey. So it's like you have to pay particular attention to where you're directing somebody. But then with music, usually my lyrics, they very often the first draft, the first thought is the best thought. That's it. Like It comes, it's perfect. Something about when, it, when you receive it, you just know. You're like, yeah. Other times you have to, I have to work, you know, three, four, five drafts on a lyric because it's just, it's not there yet. And you can feel that. But then with something like the novel, it's not so much the perfect words come to me, but it'll just be like, oh, she was 49 when he showed up. And, you know, when she discovered that her father was, yeah. <laughs> whatever, I'm just making it up. <laughs> but like, it's more that. It's more like world building. It's because actually, if you're making up a universe, the moments when it could go either way are infinite. So when you decide who they are, where they come from, where they're going, what they've done, how they've met, what they want from each other, like when you make those decisions, there's a lot feeding into the reason that you're deciding that even, like why these characters, why that moment, why this time? So there's so much like careful, careful, like pushing against an idea, inquiring whether or not it's the right environment, setting, time, so then normally that like, the epiphany moments are like, oh, it was in the pet shop. <laughs> like, whatever. Yeah, I'm thinking about the song 
Smoking on the new album, which it sounds like, I mean, I'm assuming that I'm interpreting this correctly, that truly you opened your phone and you called Dan or you dictated a note into your phone because you're like, here it is. It just came to me. This is the lyric. And then it develops from there into, you know, into a song. And there's, who's the artist who guests on that track? He's called Confucius MC. He's a very dear friend of mine and a huge inspiration in my life. We started rapping together when we were 15. So he's a massive, massive part of my creativity. He's like a brother of mine, really. Yeah, it's powerful that he's on that track. It's beautiful. And I'm just so intrigued, like how that song, emer- if that song emerged literally from a moment you were smoking and had this flash of like, of what the lyrics describe. I mean, what I think powerful about that is that is the reaching for connection that's happening when I, you can hear where I am and in the lyric, but also in the environment. You can hear that I'm in some beery backstage place. There's this clingy, clangy, like people around it. And if you, so a person is feeling like lonely, isolated, they're thinking about their life, you know, like this reaching towards our oh, creativity, Dan, albums, music, power of regenerating through creativity. So it's like in that moment, what could I have done? Well, I could have just sat there and had a beer and just thought about it and done no more about it. Or I could put pen to paper, write a lyric, and then actually be like, this lyric is something that I want to share with my, you know, my creative family, my part, my creative partner, really. Dan is my creative partner. But the reason that I included that voice recording rather than developing that into a song, you know, we obviously could have re-recorded the lyric, but it's that the whole album is kind of about reaching for the present and being in it and trying to like feel adequate in it and also the connection of loved ones, really, really trying to feel the love of those who I am fortunate enough to have around me as my loved ones. And I feel like that was just the best illustration of it because you can just hear it. And also it's like, it takes a bit of the veil away. When you hear an album, it sounds like a finished thing. It's like as if it was almost always finished, but actually this is a sequence of ideas had between two people that they kind of wrestled with and like put together and had a lot of fun with. But if you strip it back and you're like, oh, that's just a person. That's just a person who sat in a room and wrote a lyric and then just like called another person who's their friend and said, like, I've made this thing. What do you think? And I just thought there's something about opening the process up to the audience that felt more in keeping with where I'm at right now. What are some of the things that feel like creative challenges that you still maybe, you know, look forward to trying to take on in the future? Are there kind of creative things that you are daunted by but want to do? Everything, all of them. Um, The things I'm working on, I'm at different stages of completion with four or five different projects. That's usually how I like to work, three, four, five different things on the go at once. Some things are very, very, very new ideas that hardly even, they don't even exist. And then um, others are like almost finished, it's like submitted for publication and kind of nearly at proof stage. So to answer your question, I'm daunted every single time I make a piece of work, like hugely daunted. Like it's a constant battle, but also there is nothing else. Like I love life. I love my partner. I love the people around me, but this is what my life is for. Like, and I'm lucky to have that feeling about anything because a lot of people don't feel that about anything. Like, and for a long time, I didn't feel that about anything. I had real severe depression. Depression is like the opposite of creativity. It's like, for me, they are opposing forces, equal and opposing forces, actually. 
And when I'm low and I can't write and I can't move, like the terror of that is so extreme that when I can, I have to. Even if there's a voice that's like, oh, you know, you're never going to finish that novel or like it's not, it's no good or like my friend told me once, there is no writer's block. It doesn't exist. It's just the fear of writing badly. And if you take that fear away, then you can write and write and write. But if you're afraid, if you're judging what you create before you've even created it, that's the thing. It's the judgment. If you can suspend the judgment, which is about ego normally, and a will for recognition, a will to be recognized as great or for the work to be recognized as great. If you can dismantle that in your own psyche, then, or if I can dismantle that in my own psyche, then I, I hope to be able to continue to work because I've got a long way to go. And there's a lot more I want to do with my work. There's things I want to establish and there's like stylistic choices that I want to make that I haven't been able to make before because I haven't had the facilities. And there's a lot, there's a lot I want to say. So because of all that, there's, you know, I'm itching always to get back in the studio and keep writing music. Every time I listen to a song that I love by someone else, I'm like, fuck, I want to make songs. Songs are so cool. And then like, <laughs> every time I like think about characters that I have carrying around with me in my head I'm just like I just want to sit down with them and just like give them the space to speak but the reality of actually writing a novel making an album is fucking long it's so brutal like you've got to contend with like your own brain so yeah I'm daunted creatively by everything which might be a weird thing to say because I make a lot of work but maybe it's important for people to know that it, it doesn't just fall out like that you know you fight it every step of the way. I listen to a lot of kind of like sports personalities, like talking about how they approach the craft. Because I think that I feel real like kinship with them, like boxers or like solo people that have to endure like really intense, rigorous training in, in order to go out to an unplanned, like an impossible event. Sometimes when I used to go out on stage, it felt like I was walking into the ring or something. I felt like I was going to get fucking punched in the head. But now I'm just trying to enjoy it and celebrate it and just see where it takes me and feel like lucky that I get the chance. Yeah, I mean, it seems like being daunted is like the way you know that it's something that's a worthy challenge or whatever, you know, is that you're like, oh shit, I'm, I fear I might not be able to do this. So I guess that means I must do it. And then like the challenge of just getting through the phases of self-doubt once you've made that choice to go down the daunting path, but then the things come up that make you question and judge yourself or question whether it's realistic or question whether it's a good idea or and yeah, but you know what it's like I find it self-indulgent when I start to worry about those things I'm like fucking get a grip like the amount of people that I know that I've been through some real fucking like hell life is hell life is really fucking hard and painful and full of shit and people fucking suffer and you're worrying about whether or not you get to fucking hand the novel in like come on like if this all ends tomorrow fine it was beautiful go and get a fucking job and hopefully I can take care of my beautiful partner and like myself. And it's just self-indulgent. It's bollocks. It doesn't mean anything. Like what's important is giving thanks that I got to have this experience with music and literature. But I got to have an experience with the higher power of like the word. That is so powerful. And it's like, okay, whenever it's like fear, you've got to just, I've just got to see that fear and be like, who do you think you are? Like, <laughs> Just let drop it out. Then I just remember that. This was always my dream. And not everyone gets to live their dream. I think that's a good place for us to end, Kay. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks again to Kay Tempest for that interview. And thank you again for listening to episode 83 of the LSQ podcast. 
And we are now at the end of the episode and also at the end of this season, season five of the show. And I appreciate any time you've spent listening to LSQ this year. And I'll look forward to being back with new episodes in 2023. In the meantime, if the platform where you listen has the option to subscribe, I hope you'll do that. And when you have questions or feedback, you can reach me on Twitter or Instagram at JennyLSQ. I'll talk to you next time.